This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, climate talks in Glasgow are the big story right now around the world, but it doesn't always feel like that in our news here. One reporter covering the climate issue tells us every New Zealand journalist should be, and the lack of focus on COP26 is a bit of a worry because they should be throwing the issue into sharp relief. Anyone who's writing about transport should know about climate change. Anyone who's writing about finance should know about climate change. Anyone who's writing about food should know about climate change, right? Politics, obviously, everyone who writes about politics should know a lot about climate change and should be thinking about it as they write about a range of other things. But first, Tuesday's messy COVID protest at Parliament was huge news and the reporters covering it were also targeted by the protesters and not for the first time. We ask a news chief if mounting hostility to the media is a risk that editors and bosses now need to confront. Does media coverage of spectacular displays of discontent like that one in Parliament on Tuesday actually amplify the aggro and make the resistance seem more intense than it really is? Uh, more officers came out onto the Parliament forecourt as some of the protesters started to climb over the fence line. Uh, we just got lots of tennis balls thrown at us, a lot of people here targeting the media. Uh, the police now standing their ground. Uh, as people slowly disperse, the protesters over, so this fence line does seem to be going down. That was RNZ reporter Jake McKee on RNZ's Midday Report last Tuesday in the firing line, along with other reporters at that protest rally at Parliament, which was, depending on which banner you read or which speaker you heard, anti-vaccination, anti-coercion, anti-lockdown, pro-freedom, pro-sovereignty, and even, for some, pro-Trump. And, as you heard there, it was also an occasion for some to vent at the media. And you said tennis balls being thrown at the media. How how many tennis balls? Why? What were they saying as they were throwing them? Uh, the classics that the media has been paid out by the government. That's a favourite line of theirs, uh, telling us that we are the virus, um, throwing uh, the tennis balls at us. Uh, and at the police um, from on the other side of the fence line. Something they could do. We've also had water thrown at us today. Uh, Anything. They're not a fan of us. Hey, Jake, stay safe out there. Later on, News Talk ZB's Jack Crossland saw the funny side of the tennis ball bombardment. I picked up the two that hit me, mm. and one guy said, excuse me, those are mine. Give them back. <laughs> what did they say? You've got them here. Well, I've got them here. Mine's uh, One's Agenda 2030. The other one is Poison Jab. But some reporters were struck, and some painfully, by those tennis balls. And when it was all over, RNZ's Jake McKee tweeted this. It's been a hard day so far. Sad seeing people I grew up with protesting. Sad seeing people so angry and full of misinformation. Not to mention tennis balls and water bombs. But some protesters were even happy to deploy fascist insignia and insults to make a point too, though it wasn't entirely obvious what that point was. But it was certainly, though, a spectacle. And a little earlier on TBNZ's Midday News, TBNZ's energised political editor Jessica Much Mackay also acknowledged that the media were a target too. The mood, I have to say, is pretty electric. There's loud music playing, there's high energy, and we'll keep you posted as things develop throughout the day. That electric atmosphere that Jessica Much Mackay mentioned there had moments of menace in it too, like the demonstrators trying to get over those barricades when RNZ's Jack McKee was live on air earlier, though there was also a bit of self-policing. Protesters later put the toppled fencing back in place, saving the actual police the bother. As News Hubbard 6 pointed out that night, it wasn't quite the January the 6th Capitol riots in Washington. 
As a group, they were louder than they were large. And boy, those anti-vaccination protesters were loud as thousands of them marched through the capital. It was one of the biggest police operations Parliament's seen. But just as things looked set to spin out of control, the protesters pulled it back. Soon after that, the Prime Minister told reporters the protesters did not represent the vast bulk of New Zealanders and her Associate Health Minister, Dr Isha Verrill, pointed out on social media many more people than those protesting at Parliament would turn up at vaccination centres around the country to get the jab on that same day. And that was a point TVNZ1 News made at 6pm on Tuesday after its report on the protest. While a few thousand gathered to protest, many thousands more have been getting vaccinated. There were more than 21,000 doses of the vaccine administered yesterday, putting the country on the verge of the 90% milestone for first doses and just as close to the 80% with both jabs. And in her report that followed, political editor Jessica Much Mackay focused not just on the sound and the fury at the protest itself, but on the harder task of what fuelled it in the first place, misinformation and the amplification of it. Hayden Donnell took a look at how she did it and other aspects of that issue on Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday, where he also took a look at Discovery New Zealand's bold play for more viewers, announcing more channels, more news and more programmes, including one that might even mean a spruce up for Huntley. That's in our podcast feed if you missed it, or available for you on our page of the RNZ website or our section of the RNZ app. Now, also keeping an eye on what the disinformation project called a landscape that's sophisticated, motivated, adaptive, resilient, increasingly violent and significantly volatile, was journalist David Farrier, whose blog Webworm is eye-opening for those who don't keep an eye on all that stuff. This week he drew attention to messages on the Freedom Rally NZ channel on the Telegram app, fantasising about a Washington DC Capitol riot style scenario here, storming the beehive to arrest the PM for treason, and even shooting people, including the media. Now on Tuesday, of course, that didn't happen, but when it happened in Washington in January, it took Americans by surprise. And David Ferrier saw clear echoes of the far-right and anti-authoritarian sentiments in the stuff posted online here this week, among vast amounts of anti-vax paranoia, all based on misinformation. But while it is a tiny minority that's prepared to take to the streets to rail against our COVID response, jeopardise their jobs and compromise the health of themselves and others by resisting the jab, vaccine mandates are a legitimate news issue right now. That morning, Stuff's chief political correspondent Henry Cook pointed out that soon, adults who haven't got the vaccine won't be able to work in around 40% of jobs, fly on Air New Zealand internationally or go to large festivals or any event that insists on proof of vaccinations. And on RNZ's morning report the same day, Air New Zealand's chief executive Greg Foran confirmed the airline would fly unvaccinated people around the country if they got a negative test for this reason. We didn't want to leave anyone behind. Um, you know, we appreciate that there are some people uh, who will have their views around vaccination. And shortly after on Morning Report, there was this. A small King Country school expects all of its staff will be banned from the classrooms when the government's vaccine mandate takes effect next week. And the entire board of governors of that school is unvaxxed as well, it turned out. And Stuff reported that same morning that the government fears a vaccination mandate for police could lead to roughly 1,200 officers being pulled from the job. And that protest at Parliament wasn't the only one making breaking news on Tuesday. Even before a police officer was bitten by a protester at the northern Auckland road border, the Herald site had announced the traffic blockage with a bright red breaking news banner. But at the same time on RNZ National, the Māori Party's John Tamaheri told Morning Report 
Not to get too excited. Is there an anti-vaxxer mob up there? Yeah, I know there's about 10, um, you know, dollar mob uh, out there waving a few flags, but I, I didn't uh, see them. So it's a pretty as, small mob. Not, not everyone got the, got the message. All right. Yeah. And reporters on the spot later confirmed the protest was initially about 40 strong, but it dropped down to around 10 people by the time it was reported. So do the media risk amplifying such vivid displays of discontent and giving the impression that resistance and anti-vax sentiment is actually more widespread than it really is? In a minute, we'll ask a senior editor about that, and we'll also ask if the hostility towards the media is really something to worry about. Because it wasn't just tennis balls at Parliament on Tuesday. A stuffed photographer was grabbed and abused by marchers en route to the Parliament, and News Talk ZB's Jack Crossland reported this. I was taking photos of the motorbikers coming towards me. A, a man told me I should stay there and lie down, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, there's definitely a little bit of anger towards the media, and there's a few signs that say things about the media, but all in all, I can't say I feel unsafe in any way. It's just definitely a little bit tense and a little bit uncomfortable. Near the front of the march was a protest sign that said simply, Media Treason, and if you looked a little closer, it was fringed with hand-drawn swastikas. When Stuff's chief political correspondent Henry Cook asked the man for an explanation, he told him to look in the mirror, though he wouldn't actually look into TVNZ's camera when confronted at that protest. Having their freedom and not being dictated to... But just the day before Tuesday's protests, News Talk ZB's political reporter Jason Walls reckoned rising aggression towards the media was no laughing matter. Over the weekend, he noted, a TVNZ camera operator was attacked by anti-vaxxers while filming a vaccination event in Greymouth. Do you want this camera? Hey, mate. Are we ever likely to see this on the air? I don't know. Hey, don't. Hey, piss off, mate. Don't start this. Reporters covering the so-called hikoi of truth demonstrations at Auckland's northern border recently have been abused and threatened, and last week a far-right conspiracy theorist with fake media credentials disrupted a press conference to heckle the Prime Minister, who then called a halt to it. And Māori Television's current affairs host Moana Maniopoto told journalist David Farrier this week that she fears interviewing people for her show could turn them into targets for aggressive anti-vaxxers. This week, News Talk ZB's Jason Walls also warned that the media should now brace for more abuse from the 10% or so yet to get the jab, who he said seemed to be united by both their distrust of government and the mainstream media. RNZ's head of news, Richard Sutherland, is also the deputy chair of the group that represents the mutual interests of our news media, the Media Freedom Committee. So does he see aggression towards journalists from COVID campaigners lately as just background noise, or is it now a real threat? The Media Freedom Committee and its constituent members, the, the mainstream media, which is a terrible term, I hate to use it, but, but we are all of the view there is an increasing level of aggression towards journalists from people opposed to either the vaccine rollout or the vaccine mandates or the COVID restrictions. A few tennis balls lobbed at Parliament might not seem like uh, a major, but it's a further escalation. And so, yes, we, we are concerned. I am concerned as someone who has to oversee a news operation that sends people out into the field every day, that one day someone is going to assault and, and attack and seriously injure or, God forbid, worse, 
one of our staff. Well, there was a direct um, sort of assault of a kind which was filmed by a TVNZ crew just last weekend in Greymouth. I mean, we've seen that before, haven't we, outside courtrooms and so on, when the atmosphere is a tense. So, you know, if called upon to, to prove that it's getting worse, you could actually do so? Uh, in the very near future, the, the EMFC will get together and that's where the information that we're collating as individuals will come into play and we'll be able to use that as evidence. Yeah, I went down there to take a look in Wellington at the Parliament and as other commentators, observers, journalists have noted pretty odd mix of people. Some just didn't like the mandate or the notion of coercion or medical intervention for various reasons. Others, there were some fairly menacing, intimidating looking people there. Is it a case of reporters having to weigh up, look, there might be threat here, this could turn nasty, I better get out of here? Is it that sort of response that they'd have to judge? That's exactly what we're all doing as um, employers, is making sure that the journalists are empowered to keep themselves safe at all times and remove themselves from any situation that they feel threatened in or to not go into a situation where they feel there could be a threat. It's really important that the journalists know that they can pull out without there being any consequences. They're not going to have an um, angry news editor on the phone saying, why didn't you get that story, or you missed that deadline, or this isn't good enough, get back in there. Now, these days the stakes are too high and staff safety is, is absolutely paramount. Would you advise them to be mostly wary of individuals that look like you know they've been radicalised a bit by misinformation or strange beliefs, and they might be minded to have a pop at an individual reporter or... Is your worry really the mass thing, that it is a mass that is not friendly to the media? Look, I think reporters need to be aware of both situations. We had an incident a few months ago where a reporter was um, out at night just um, hoping to get some vox pops, some um, grabs from members of the public about something in relation to um, uh, some COVID announcement. And this guy's first reaction was to just lunge at the reporter interfere with his mic, attempt to pull down his mask. Individuals like that, if they all coalesce together in a mob or a crowd or a demonstration, then that's a completely different kettle of fish, but but you've got all those individuals in the same place. So, look, I, I think that journalists who are going out and talking to people or covering stories need to be aware that there's been a steady ratcheting up of the narrative that somehow journalists are, in quote marks, the enemy of the people, part of some wide-ranging international conspiracy. That is the view of people whose critical reasoning faculties have really left them quite some time ago, if indeed they ever had them. And is it, in that sense, worth talking to groups such as, I don't know, the Freedom and Rights Coalition, trying to talk to their leadership and saying, actually, you know, you need to make sure you understand why journalists are there and maybe communicate this when you organise your events? Look, I, I, I'm happy to talk to anyone, anytime, anywhere about media freedom and the importance of, of the media in a secular liberal democracy. Um, what I'm not about to get comfortable with is um, going cap in hand to organisers of an event and saying, please, can you tell your people not to attack the media? I, I know it might seem trivial being um, bombarded with tennis balls while you're trying to cover a protest on the forecourt of parliament, but Put yourself in the position of a reporter who's standing there in front of a, a sea of people, many of them uh, accusing you personally of being a, a traitor, enemy of the people, and they're throwing things at you. Now, one of our reporters was struck in the head by a tennis ball. Technically, that's assault. So I don't think that the, that the media 
should have to go and say to the organisers of these demonstrations, please tell the people that you are encouraging to come to these events to act in a lawful manner. What we're seeing is the exporting of the polarisation that we watched from afar happen in the United States via social media. It is, it is happening here, a fringe element, weaponized in a way by social media, are being radicalized in a way that makes me quite uncomfortable about civil discourse and public debate in this country. We've had some of this feedback here to Media Watch. People out there, readers, listeners, saying they feel sometimes the coverage actually amplifies uh, the impression of you know, resistance and, and opposition. As, as the politicians have pointed out, look, more people would have got vaccinated on that day than turned up to Parliament. And uh, you know, more people are now vaccinated than actually got to vote in, in general yep. elections. So is there a danger that you kind of amplify that, that notion of resistance and opposition? The bar really is, is it at the level where it's causing significant disruption or um, newsworthy disruption to the wider society? When it gets to the point, though, where you have several thousand people walking down Lambton Quay and targeting Parliament, you have to report it. And you have to report why they're there. And then you have to leave it up to the audience to decide what they think of that. As journalists, all we can do is report in a fair way and in a balanced way what is going on in the country and um, as much as possible. But if you don't keep an eye on these sorts of things when they're just starting to grow, who knows that in maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now we are issuing our journalists with hard hats and flak jackets as they go out to cover a routine demonstration because we just don't know what's going to happen. One thing that's interesting is, is people claiming that the media has been bought by the government are there to do their bidding. We've even seen it in the past. People have been quite specific about this, referring to, for example, the $55 million sum of the government's public interest journalism fund, that perception that somehow uh, journalists are biased because money is coming to them from the government. Well, I was having a conversation with a colleague about this just the other day, and she said, well, where's my cheque? I guess there's this outlandish theory that somehow the government um, is heading up a conspiracy and that the media are part of this worldwide conspiracy to do X or Y or Z. Uh, really, the media is not that organised for a start. <laughs> to be honest, neither is government. Honestly, on a day-to-day -day basis, that sort of thing does not factor into our thinking at all. I mean, Radio New Zealand is completely funded by the taxpayer. That does not in any way affect our reporting of the government. Um, you can ask any government of the day how they feel about some of the questions they get asked by Radio New Zealand journalists. If they were paying us not to do that, they're not getting value for money because we certainly do not factor that into our thinking at all. And neither does the commercial media sector, who some of whom had successful applications to the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Uh, it's actually kind of insulting in a way. But it is a perception, Richard, that has taken root among some people. Like I say, I've heard it when Peter Williams was uh, suddenly decided to retire without warning from the Magic Talk Network. People were phoning up and saying, this will be because of that 55 million bucks. Does someone have to say and, and actually make the point that, um, look, public money has been going into media in various forms to various organisations in substantial ways for a long time and this does not change that picture? Look, I don't know that if you put that message out there, it's going to be heard by the people who will not choose to believe anything that comes from any sort of official source or any sort of uh, mainstream media source. It's, it's the conspiracy theory writ large that somehow 
we are in the back pocket of the government in a great worldwide global conspiracy. But of course, I would say that if I was part of the conspiracy, wouldn't I? There was RNZ's head of news, Richard Sutherland, who's also the deputy chair of the group that represents the mutual interests of our news media, the Media Freedom Committee. And you can hear more of what Richard had to say about hostility against the media, aggression towards reporters, what's driving it, and what media companies can do about it in the online version of the story. It's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. Now, as we mentioned earlier, TVNZ One News last Tuesday made a point of stating what had propelled those people to that protest at Parliament. The rising tide of misinformation drives thousands to Parliament's doorstep amid concern about new extremes of online abuse and false information. And that was a reference to the latest report from Te Punaha Matatini on COVID-19 misinformation, which found that it had been rising steeply since Delta arrived in late August and was becoming increasingly violent in tone. The disinformation project also said leading public figures and officials, including members of parliament and journalists, had received specific targeting and abuse. The dismissal of science and expertise was also a common theme, but you don't always have to burrow down a digital rabbit hole for that. The health response, for all that the Rod Jacksons want to squeal about, is over. That was News Talk ZB's Kate Hawksby on air on the morning of the protest last Tuesday, and she hadn't finished belittling the public health experts. But for the people still listening to the squealing hysteria of the people will die, epidemiologists like Rod Jackson, uh, you're in for a shock. The government's no longer listening to them. Neither should we. I don't know why they get so much airtime. Well, Kate Hawksby, of course, does know why they get airtime, because they know what they're talking about during a public health emergency and not just what they reckon. But what Kate Hawksby reckons is usually echoed on the air by her husband, who's on the air just after her every weekday on News Talk ZB. And so it was last Tuesday. Ask Michael Baker whether we should be being more cautious, be in lockdown longer and wear masks literally forever. He'll always say yes. What about if you ask him, should we be freaking out? No, he'd, he'd say far too conservative to freak out. That's far too much of an emotion. You leave Rod for the freaking out, Hendy for the deaths, and Baker for the conservatism. Got all bases covered, 21 to 9. And Mike Hosking had one expert in particular in his sights. The day that Dern turned up with Hendy beaming in on his big screen going, there are 7,000 people going to die. And you thought we took that seriously, for God's sake. And all that chimed with one of Mike Hosking's listeners who texted Mike soon after to tell him this. Mike, the biggest problem we have is that we took the, we took the rectum of the medical profession, the epidemiologist, <laughs> and turned them into gods who manage the pandemic. Then, uh, to make matters worse, we allow them to rely on the other voodoo discipline of modellers, the results, moronic medical decisions with devastating economic impacts. So I think that if we ever get around to holding a... Uh, Royal Commission, you'll probably find that's true. And it's the same all over the world. The epidemiologists and the modellers have been the same all over the world. Sage in Britain. Uh, they've all been proven to be wildly, wildly inaccurate. But that same day on his website, Politic, veteran political journalist Richard Harmon pointed out the Prime Minister's office recently released modelling that influenced its latest alert-level decisions, which forecast there would be about 1,200 new cases and 15 patients in ICU by the end of last week. And it was not all that far out, said Richard Harmon. There were 1,037 new cases and seven in ICU. 
Now that modelling also forecasts 1,400 new cases and 20 patients in ICU by the end of next week, something that would suggest the outbreak is approaching a plateau, if not necessarily a peak. And that's important and significant if that's how it pans out. Mike Hosking and his ZB listeners who reckon the epidemiologists reside in the rectum of science should be able to work out by then who's really talking out of their backside. Last Thursday, Mike Hosking's own modelling turned out to be wildly wrong just before 6am when his wife Kate asked him this on the air. The What's happening in the cricket? We're going to lose. Oh no. I mean, we're not, we haven't lost yet, but really the numbers don't look good. But if you were tuned into sports radio network SENZ at that time, you'd have heard this. It's a short one, he hits over mid-wicket this time. That's even bigger and better and bolder. 86 metre hit, another Burger King whopper moment. He's making fools out of people like myself who questioned his selection at the top of the innings. And when the winning runs were hit at about 6.30am, TVNZ's breakfast team was poised to cross to Glasgow in the COP26 talks in the news. And understandably... They were a little distracted. We've won the cricket. Incredible. Incredible. Uh, against England. In the news. Yeah. In the news. Yeah. Before climate change. We will have that uh, later in my bulletin. <laughs> and half an hour later, the win in Abu Dhabi led breakfast 7am news, displacing those developments in Glasgow. And Jimmy Neesham is going to be with us just after the weather. Climate change minister James Shaw is confident real climate progress will come from the COP26 summit. Now those who aren't keen on sport might reckon that the news priorities were a little out of whack there. But there's no harm in putting a dramatic national sporting win at the top of the news for a bit while it's fresh. And sports news and climate change news are very different things anyway. Or are they? As New Zealand's run chase was ramping up in Abu Dhabi on Thursday morning, Morning Report had this from Australia's ABC. Who wants it? Three World Cups, 83 tests for his country and a former captain. Now off the field, David Pocock's focus isn't on the rugby his old team's playing, but who's sponsoring them? The former Wallaby, who's now a prominent conservation advocate, tweeting from the Glasgow COP26 Climate Summit. Sport can bring people together and show the best of Australia. So it's sad to see a fossil gas company with big expansion plans now on the back of a jersey I absolutely love playing in. And a veteran surf lifesaver told the ABC in that report he didn't like sponsorship from petrol brands either. I've seen the coastline now damaged and the fact that the major contributor to climate change issues appears to be, and I believe the scientists, the fossil fuel industry. Jamie Travers, with that from the ABC, it's an interesting dilemma, that one. Yeah, hell of a finish looming in the cricket. An interesting dilemma indeed, and an illustration of how climate change is now cutting across all sorts of other news issues. Mark Dalder covers climate change for newsroom.co.nz as well as politics and the pandemic and he told Media Watch's Hayden Donnell this week all journalists now need to be climate change reporters too. Kia ora Mark, welcome to Media Watch. Thanks, thank you for having me. So we're two weeks into COP26 nearly. How would you grade the New Zealand media's coverage of the event so far? The, the outlets that have sent reporters to Glasgow have done a really good job. I mean, you know, staff has done an excellent job of maybe technical, but really, really important stuff that's happening on the ground. Uh, I think other outlets, particularly if you not don't have someone there, uh, have taken to covering COP 
talking about who's attending and what the activists say and what this person says, but without sort of getting into the substance of like what is actually happening happening at COP, what are the stakes, um, what are the decisions being made and, and, and why does it matter? Yeah, what are, what are the qualities of reporting on COP26 that you would identify as good, as covering it well, and especially covering it well for a local context like New Zealand? You do want to be covering what it means for our farmers and what it means for our electricity sector and, and so on and so forth. But it can be tempting just to find the one New Zealand angle each day, and that's probably not good enough. COP is being covered as an event and there will be a sort of flurry of climate coverage around it, both of the event and of sort of other climate change aspects. And it will end um, next week and people will go back to not really covering climate change until there's another big reason to cover it, um, which is sort of not how climate change is actually happening. It's happening all the time, always, and it's getting worse every day. The, the way it tends to work in the media is... Uh, you wait for an IPCC report to come out, you wait for a climate summit, you wait for a policy to be announced, and, and that's what how climate change is covered as a, an occasional thing, not a, an ever-present thing. The scale of COVID-19 and the way that has reshaped how we do journalism, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find a journalist anywhere in the country, and certainly in, in, say, the press gallery where I work, who doesn't know what contact tracing is and who can't give you sort of a decent explanation of how it works. But that same awareness is not present for climate, which has just as much of a, a sort of widespread impact on everything we do and the way we live and, and the ways we will live in the future. Why do you think that news organisations don't cover climate comprehensively and don't have expertise all throughout the newsroom on it? You know, it's important to remember that journalists are people like everyone else. And so, you know, very few of us have got um, a degree in uh, physics or meteorology or, or, or whatever else might be helpful to really understand the science of climate change. Um, and just be, you know, just as sort of everyday New Zealanders don't really think about climate change as something that's necessarily affecting them right now in in uh, you know the way they drive to work or the way that they eat or, or what have you, um, journalists are, are subject to that same sort of not bias but um, you know lack of awareness. Um, I think there's a degree to which it's incumbent on outlets to instruct or create incentives for journalists to do climate coverage. You know, Stuff has done a good job of that. this in setting up a climate team and saying we really want to do climate change coverage better. It is really obvious that you should have a climate team in any outlet that has, for example, a business team or a science team or a personal finance team or a lifestyle team. Like Climate change touches on all of those things and to some extent is bigger than all of them and so therefore sort of deserves its own focus. Um, but then you have to expand beyond that into making sure that the journalists in the business team and the lifestyle team um, and the polit politics team as well uh, are also doing climate coverage or taking it into account as they write about it. The big problem that news organisations have faced with climate coverage is just to be frank, no one clicks on it, right? And this is a problem that's kind of bedeviled newsrooms for a really long time. How do you get people to click on and care about stories about, you know, what some say is like a looming apocalypse? Why do you think that is? Maybe it's because climate, it feels like a far off thing. You know, the, the frog in the pot. And once you can actually start to see the bubbles, that's when it's too late. So people are waiting for climate change to get catastrophic before they really start to worry about it. And um, by the time it's catastrophic, it's too late to do anything about it. No one cared about COVID when it was in China. Suddenly it's in New Zealand and it dominates the headlines um, and everyone is reading 
you know, five times as much news as they were beforehand, but only about COVID, right? Not about other stuff. Some things are newsworthy and must be covered even if no one reads about them. If the audiences for COVID were as small as they were for climate, we wouldn't still be covering it to the same extent we are right now because it's an urgent pressing threat to sort of the health and safety of the country. My firmly held belief is that if news outlets covered climate change more and filtered climate into much more of their non-sciencey coverage, that would sort of help change the way everyone thinks about climate. And suddenly people would be more willing to click on these articles because they're reading more about climate regardless of whether they're intending to or not. And we have an opportunity to do that on climate, maybe even an obligation to do so, that I don't think we're fulfilling. Is part of the problem that this seems like almost the most boring possible way for the world to end. So like a meteor streaking across the sky, it's an immediate problem. Our brains are hardwired to respond to immediate problems. We do something about it. COVID-19. It's immediate. It's in our faces. We do something about it. But this kind of slow suffocation due to changing weather patterns is hard to rally around, especially when it's diffused all across the world and we can't see it immediately in front of us. Yes, to some extent, it is hard to sensationalize. Or if you did sensationalize it, you would probably be doing a a disservice. It wouldn't be good coverage if you were to, all life on Earth will end by 2030. That's that's not true, not how climate change works. But um, I think the other difficulty with climate change is two things. One, it's quite technical, or, or it's not what you expect it to be when you start learning about it. People think of climate change as an environment problem, but it's actually, it's an energy problem, it's a, a transport problem, it's a policy problem. It, that makes it hard for people to sort of grasp as, as just one thing because it's so diffuse uh, across all sorts of sectors of society. And then the other thing is the implications of climate change that we need to change how we live, drive less or eat less meat. People might just be turned off just based on that. Is it a situation where the commercial imperatives of newsrooms, particularly ones that rely primarily on advertising, which is generated by high-click stories and, you know, big audiences, they conflict with the sort of imperative of covering this really important, potentially most important story in the world. Like a lot of the big crises that we've had over the past sort of decade or two, climate change has been ill-served by the commercial imperatives in newsrooms. That, that don't line up with the public interest function that journalism really plays. I mean, you could see it with COVID a little bit in terms of, you know, news outlets had higher readership than ever before, pretty much, while in lockdown last year. You know, journalists were doing the most important work of their lives in terms of informing people about the response and holding the government to account and improving the response through that accountability journalism. And yet actual revenue for every publication dropped quite precipitously. And it shows that there's just a huge disconnect between the public interest role of journalism and how outlets make money. And, and that's sort of just a broader issue that needs solving. And, and it also, uh, you know, is seen in the way that we cover climate or don't cover climate. There's also questions around whether news outlets should be taking advertising money from fossil fuel companies. As far as I'm aware, we don't really advertise for cigarette companies anymore. And, and fossil fuel companies do more damage to the atmosphere and to, to people's health than uh, cigarettes ever did. Without getting into fixing the entire media funding model, is there a way that we can, I guess, make climate change suit that model a little bit better? One way to do it would be to integrate climate change into every reporter's round and to just diffuse it across the entire news production. 
Emily Atkin, who, who writes the heated newsletter from the States, wrote about this uh, earlier this year when there were, you know, huge heat waves and, and wildfires and and they were being covered often in the media as natural disasters, but without any mention of climate change, which scientists say undoubtedly made them worse than they would have otherwise been. And in some cases, those events would not have occurred without climate change. She said, every reporter must now be a climate reporter. You know, I deeply believe that because like I've said, you know, climate change touches on so many different aspects of our lives, both the impacts of it and the things we need to do to, you know, make sure that those impacts are not as bad as they otherwise could be. And so anyone who's writing about transport should know about climate change. Anyone who's writing about finance should know about climate change. Anyone who's writing about food should know about climate change, right? Politics, obviously, everyone who writes about politics should know a lot about climate change and should be thinking about it as they write about transport policy or you know, climate policy, obviously, or a range of other things, and, um, and should be working it into their coverage in, in some way. It doesn't mean that every story is now about climate change, but that you acknowledge the role that climate change plays in, in these stories. Is that something that we can fix in the New Zealand media? Yeah, 100%. And I almost feel like that's the lowest bar, right? Is that you have a climate-influenced natural disaster, you should obviously mention climate change while writing about it. Five or 10% of the articles that I looked at uh, covering the West Coast flooding made any mention of climate change. When, you know, again, that event would not have been as bad, it would not have caused as much damage as it did without climate change. That's a really important context. It's like someone covering unemployment in New Zealand and not mentioning the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdowns, right? It, it, it's unimaginable because one has a direct effect on the other. If the role of journalists is to sort of tell their audiences the truth, this is a fundamental part of the truth that we should be telling people. That was Mark Dalder, who covers climate change for newsroom.co.nz, as well as politics and the pandemic. And there he was telling Media Watch's Hayden Donnell, all journalists should now be climate change reporters too. Now, as Mark Dalder mentioned there, Newsroom sent its business writer, Rod Oram, to Glasgow for COP26. And last week on Midweek Media Watch with Karen Hay, I mentioned that Newsroom had specifically fundraised to cover the cost of Rod Oram's travel, which isn't cheap in the era of COVID and MIQ. And we heard about some of Rod Oram's reporting from Glasgow as well. But there I mistakenly said Rod Oram was no longer with Newsroom. But that's wrong. While former business editor and newsroom pro manager Bernard Hickey moved on recently, Rod Oram is still a key newsroom columnist and contributor on business, economics and, of course, climate change. Apologies for the error. Well, that's all we have for you on Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show. And then we'll be back again with more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.